Hello, I'm Ron Canada. You may know me as Martin Benbeck from TNG, Chapak from DS9, or Fessick from Voyager. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. If you're a regular listener to this series, you know that the majority of our episodes are with character actors, because Star Trek, like all episodic television, employed thousands of them through each series. Some did Trek early in their career, others at the tail end, but if you've learned anything from this podcast, it's ultimately a true who's who of people that have passed through the series. There's many performers who have had and continue to have truly great careers, but aren't celebrated whatsoever for their efforts. And for Trek Untold, that's always been the content of the show to make sure that those people get the spotlight. Today's interview especially feels like one of those where the concept of this show to honor those who don't normally get that giant spotlight has never been more true. Today, we're speaking with Mr. Ron Canada. Ron has appeared three different times in the Star Trek franchise. First in the Next Generation episode, The Masterpiece Society, as Martin Benbeck, a sort of judge-like character who was part of a genetically engineered group of humans on a doomed planet. He returned to Deep Space Nine as Chipak in The Rules of Engagement, a Klingon lawyer prosecuting Worf due to an incident where all was, of course, not what it seemed. His final appearance in the franchise was in the Voyager episode titled Juggernaut, and he played the Malon named Fessick, who teamed up with the crew to prevent his damaged freighter from exploding and polluting the galaxy. Outside of Star Trek, Ron has been a professional actor for over four decades and has appeared in over 200 films and television shows, including Adventures in Babysitting, Dallas, Cheers, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, A Different World, Sister Sister, Family Matters, L.A. Law, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Home Alone 2, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Murder 1, Felicity, the X-Files, The Shield, One-on-One, The West Wing, Cinderella Man, Stargate SG-1, Ted 2, The Orville, and much, much, much more. In my research for this interview, I was surprised to see how little there was out there about Ron. There were a few very short clips of him discussing his work on YouTube, but each was like less than three minutes long. And there were practically no text articles either, so I'm very happy to say this is probably the most in-depth interview about this very excellent actor. And it's really about time that somebody profiled this genius of the stage, screen, and television. It's also one of the longest interviews I've ever done on Trek Untold, and that's because there was just so much to talk about, and Ron had so many very interesting and intelligent things to say about performing. And you know what? Ron deserved all that time, and much, much more. So let's spend a few hours today with Ron Canada and learn all about who he is and what he does. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash Trek Untold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. 
But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and that other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the line, we have Mr. Ron Canada, whose face you have seen many, many times in many shows, films. We're going to talk about a few of those today. And of course, a bunch of Star Trek episodes. Mr. Canada, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me. It's so great to actually be chatting with you today, because again, you're, you're one of those character actors whose faces I've seen in so many things. So uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to chat with you today about some of that work. I appreciate being here. So outside of your actual appearance in Star Trek, can you tell us what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Well, the first season, what year was that? 66, 67? 66, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I think I recall it, it used to come on Fridays. Um, and there had been a long time when there had been no space shows. Uh, TV goes through periods of Westerns and detectives and, and, uh, Space shows, though, had been noticeably uh, absent from the uh, genres that were on TV at the time. I had watched in the 50s, though, uh, I had uh, watched a show. uh, There was a a couple of shows that I liked, uh, outer space shows when I was a a preteen. Rocky Jones, Space Ranger, uh, prominently, and... uh, they used to run in New York City, where I grew up, on uh, Channel 9, WOR-TV. They used to run a lot of uh, the old Buster Crab Flash Gordons with Ming the Merciless and uh, uh, and, and all of that. And I, I, I was a big fan of those. But as I said, in the uh, 60s, there weren't very many uh, space shows. I, I never – maybe that – space family Robinson thing, but I don't know. I think that was after Trek, but I, I never, I couldn't get into that for some reason. But anyway, uh, Star Trek just blew my mind. For one thing, they had uh, uh, an African uh, American uh, woman, uh, Uhura uh, there, which was mind blowing in 1966. And then there were um, episodes in which uh, Percy Rodriguez, I think, would guest star. And I think there was one with maybe Raymond St. Jacques. I'm not sure, but definitely Percy Rodriguez, um, uh, an African-American actor at the time who who went on to be very big in the movie trailer voice business. And um, an actor I got to know and would become pivotal in my career many years later, William Marshall. Uh, in his episode where he had the uh, automated system controlling uh, a starship or that it was installed in the Enterprise for te- uh, testing. Anyway, all of that was extremely exciting on, on television because other than uh, uh, I Spy uh, with uh, Bill Cosby and Robert Culp, there weren't that many 
shows that featured um, African-Americans uh, prominently uh, in their cast. And so it was very exciting and it was outer space. And I remember that uh, me and a small uh, group of my uh, uh, close uh, pals then would, uh, you know, gather together often to watch it. I believe my memory seems to tell me it used to come on Friday nights, but I'm not sure. But I, I, I was just totally uh, uh, caught up in it and tried not to miss uh, episodes in those first couple of uh, first uh, uh, two seasons, I guess. I guess there were only maybe three or four, but um, the first. But I, I, I fell in love with the show uh, almost immediately. That's great. You know, like your story about seeing someone who looks like you in Star Trek. Uh, it's not a foreign one either to a lot of Star Trek actors. Uh, a lot of folks we talked to, in fact, on this show, they felt very much inspired seeing someone that looked like them. It's it's a big deal. It was rare. In, in, uh, I mean, the world was I've lived long enough now um, uh, to appreciate how how much and swiftly the world has changed. And it's very hard for people, I think, um, maybe under 40 to understand, certainly you know, people under 30, that the world that I grew up in, I was a teenager in, uh, in 66, uh, seeing people of color on TV. Oh, there was also um, uh, George Takai uh, as a regular um, and, you know, not playing, uh, you know, a sort of uh, cliche uh, 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 character um, uh, who, who couldn't pronounce uh, R's and turns R's into L's and so forth. Uh, uh, that was um, tremendous. Um, although there had been Asian characters in a series that I think um, Mr. Roddenberry wrote for, um, Have Gun Will Travel, I believe he wrote um, several episodes of that. Um, and there would be Asian characters in that who, who, you know, were some portrayed as intelligent, dignified human beings, although at a lower social status. But that was, uh, but the world I grew in, up in, um, for instance, there were no women pilots. There were no, uh, there were very few women attorneys. Um, there were no women firefighters. There were no women policemen. Um, and, and I'm talking 1966. Uh, uh, and, and so if you look at the world today, um, there was no openly gay anybody's um, uh, doing anything. Um, so, yeah, this has been a tremendous uh, change, societal change in 35 years. You mentioned already that you grew up in New York. I'm actually from Queens also, so I'm a New Yorker myself. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd like to know a little bit about uh, what part you grew up in, what your parents did for a living, and what little Ron wanted to be when he grew up. Well, uh, let's see. Let me answer those uh, questions in sequence. I grew up uh, on 127th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue in a housing project called the St. Nicholas Projects. Uh, I was uh, it, out of the front door of my building. If I could have walked in a straight line for two blocks, I would have walked through the back door of the Apollo Theater wow. in Harlem. So uh, very central uh, Harlem near the intersection of 125th Street and, and uh, what was then called 7th Avenue. What did I want to be when I grew up? Um, I didn't know. I, 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 at that time, as a little kid, I didn't know. I, I, had, I had no real ideas. Um, you know, I, again, the field of opportunities to think about what one could be for someone like uh, me, an African-American boy, were were a lot narrower uh, than today when 
when a person of color can imagine themselves to be anything, including president or vice president of the United States. Uh, again, this was was a long time ago. So I don't think I had had a very clear idea of what the future held. And my father was um, a, a longshoreman, um, what some people refer to as a stevedore, but I know stevedore is a particular uh, title on any on a dock. Uh, um, my dad worked in New York City waterfronts for 50 years. He worked in in Hoboken and in New York. When you see the movie On the Waterfront, and uh, you see them all gathering to be picked there with Terry, with uh, Marlon Brando's character. And you see, you know, sprinkled in there, um, black guys. The, you know, that was, those were portraying the persons that my, my father, uh, that was his job, uh, loading and unloading uh, ships. Um, it was particularly... Uh, he worked for a long time on what was Pier 40 in on New York's west side, um, near the vicinity of Houston Canal Street. I think it's at the end of Canal, or maybe just north of Canal. It was the old Holland America Lines uh, dock where the uh, SS Amsterdam and the SS Rotterdam would dock in their transoceanic uh, voyages. So I had a grew up with a picture of the. Uh, the uh, Amsterdam uh, on the wall, uh, you know, in my bedroom, uh, a, a painting that he had brought home and uh, put up in my room. So when did you first discover acting was something that you had an interest in? I was in high school and uh, my uh, best friend at the time attended the high school for performing arts, which was located on 46th Street. Um, it's back to being a school now. At one time it was a firehouse, but the movie Fame, you know, where Iron Kara sings, I want to live forever. Well, that that school was a real thing. Um, actors like Ben Vereen and Suzanne Plachette, uh, two to come to mind, graduated from there. And um, my uh, friend was uh, a, a year behind uh, uh, Ben Vereen. Um, Anyway, um, so I would hang out with him a lot because they had the most fun parties and they were young actors and uh, they had the most interesting girls and uh, uh, they were just a more sophisticated crowd. So I got exposed to these, you know, teenage actor or wannabe actor people. And uh, through my friend, I remember my friend was in a, a Broadway play with Paul Ford. Um, the, the 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 colonel from the old Sergeant Bilko TV series. And anyway, I, I, I went to the opening night party with my friend and it piqued my interest in movies and television. And I just always was drawn to it. I, I, I became more and more interested in movies and film. And I always had the feeling that I could do that. I, I can't explain it, but I always felt that that I could could be on camera. Uh, it, it evolved very shortly uh, in the late 60s to uh, to wanting to do the news. But um, I always felt that I could be on camera and lo, I've spent now, oh God, almost 50 years. 2021 will be my 50th year. And I've been on camera every year for 50 years. Yeah, it's very, very impressive. And you've got a wonderful resume to show as well from all that time in acting. Do you remember what your first gig was that was ever on TV or on film? Uh, let's see. Well, you know, the funny thing was 
strangely enough, back when I was a, a senior in, in high school, uh, 1966, I, um, a, a magazine, a, a teenage uh magazine. I can't remember the name of it. Um, anyway, they, I somehow got commissioned to, to write an article, to visit a movie set and write an article and, about it. Um, and the movie set was the set of Up the Down Staircase. I believe the director's name was Robert Mulligan, and it starred Sandy Duncan and uh, Eileen Heckart. And it, it was set in a New York a public school. And so as part of the experience, I got to be background uh, in that movie. And that was really the very first time that I was in a uh, in a in a Hollywood picture. Um, there's one scene uh, in that movie where I can be well, I know where to look, but I can be clearly seen as Eileen Heckert and Sandra, Sandra Duncan talk by the punch bowl at the high school prom and in between them I can be be spotted uh there as a as a as a as a as a, 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 as a student. I was background at that time. But um let's see acting um there was a uh where I actually got to say uh lines there was a television local television production in Washington DC um done at the at the Channel Seven there, WJLA, and I, I had a brief one scene part, playing someone's boss or something. Um, it was just one scene. It was just a line or two. That was my first spoken time I spoke on camera, not as a newsman but as an actor. And um, then, the first time I, I really had a, a, a principal part in a film was in a very bad remake of The Invisible Man. I think it was called The Man Who Wasn't There. And it starred it starred um, Steve, uh, oh God, uh, Three Men and a Baby. Steve, Steve Gutenberg? Steve Gutenberg. I spoke my first lines to Steve Gutenberg. I played um, a guy who was uh, out in front of a porno theater trying to hustle in customers. <laughs> And uh, uh, as part of his misadventures as the uh, invisible man, he he came. There was some clue he had to get in his joint. And he 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 uh, came across me in front of the theater and uh, we had an exchange. And I think we slapped five or gave each other a pound, as as as, as we said in the vernacular. And uh, and he went on about his way. But uh uh, that that trailer I later found out uh, years later was uh, edited by uh, a guy who directed me in a movie, Howie Deutsch, who uh, I think directed a couple of John Hughes movies. But he directed me in uh, a movie called uh, Getting Even with Dad with Macaulay Culkin and Ted Ted uh, Danson. And he, he 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 let me know he remembered me from that trailer that he had cut the trailer for that terrible version of the invisible man. <laughs> that was 1981, 82, I think somewhere in there, but that's how I got my SAG uh, card and became officially a member of the screen actors guild. I had been a member of American Fe Federation of television and radio artists uh, since 1971 um, because I had been, you know, in, in the television news business. So, 
I think one of the first times I can remember actually recognizing your face on TV was in Family Matters. And you did two episodes of that as Dave McClure, the man who owned the Mighty Weenie franchise. And you got to yeah, do uh, the, genie, the Genie of Weenies. That's yes, right. The Genie of Weenies. Uh, and you got to do some scenes with Jaleel White, Darius McCreary. Uh, do you remember yes. anything about working with those guys? Oh, Darius. Darius is such a good actor. And I, 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 I you know, I've often wondered why he hasn't seen more. He was such a, first of all, he's such a fabulous young man. And um, I think he did. Uh, uh, yet I did see him in a very uh, powerful couple of scenes in the left, the leftovers, the fantastic HBO series of a couple of years ago with some of the best acting I've ever seen on television uniformly that starred uh, Justin Trudeau and, uh, and uh, the great Carrie Coon and, uh, Regina King. Um, it was a fantastic uh, HBO series. And Darius uh, played, uh, had a couple of scenes. He was some kind of seer, visionary. He was wonderful. I remember him, uh, what a lovely young person he was and, and how professional he was. And um, of course, Jaleel was in the height of playing the Urkel character. And so uh, I had inter- I interacted with Urkel. Um, you know, I, we had uh, a scene where he came to my house and, and uh, to to date my daughter. Uh, I think the actress's name was Tammy Townsend, um, and um, she uh, he 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 broke some super expensive vase of mine or something. Anyway, uh, people people remember the episodes and they like them. And uh, you know when when you're a guest star and you got to fit into what's going on, and uh, part of it is understanding why you're there. Uh, to create the texture around the 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 money, the star, and Urkel was the star, uh, and so um, uh, you know we were able to do that successfully. I, I do remember though enjoying uh, having more interaction with uh, with uh, Darius and and uh, thinking very very highly of him. Um, uh, and the funny thing was that at the beginning of that series. Reggie Bell Johnson, it was meant to be a series, uh, you know, uh, where he was the lead because he had achieved some uh, uh, fame in the Die Hard, first Die Hard movie. And they were building the series around him. He ended up playing the dad. And uh, there was he ran into some sort of legal problems just before. Uh, the the show was to go on and they were Hollywood always has replacements ready. And so I remember I went to an audition uh, over at the studio. I think it was Columbia Sony, I think, uh, where I auditioned for that dad role to pop for the possibility. Should they have to replace Reggie, which they did not. Good for him. And he had he and went on to with the. Uh, with Jaleel and, uh, and and Darius to have many years of success, which I, I, I begrudge him not uh, because it was his role to begin with. I'm glad he escaped his difficulties and uh, and went on to be very successful. Absolutely. Reggie deserved it. I mean, he's the man that saved Bruce Willis and the Ghostbusters and had to deal with Urkel. So, I mean, that's that's quite a career in itself right there. Yes, 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 it was. So a film I'm a little late to the party with, but I just saw recently uh, Adventures in Babysitting and you were in that as well. And uh, I want to mainly ask about that film because uh, you worked in that film with Anthony Rapp, who is now Lieutenant Stamets on Star Trek Discovery. Uh, So I'm curious if you have any memories of working with Anthony. 
Oh, oh, Anthony, sure. Anthony was was a very um, outgoing, exuberant young man. I mean, that cast, if you go, people, are, if you look at that cast, um, many of us have gone on to quite substantial careers. As a matter of fact, I was just watching Elizabeth Shue as the boss on The Boys, <laughs> uh, which I've just, uh, just uh, uh, started to watch. Um, and she is, uh, I think her name is Stillwell. She's the big corporate honcho uh, leader. But uh, Elizabeth, uh, Brad, Bradley Whitford, who I went on to work with, uh, uh, Anthony, uh, who was uh, a redheaded kid with a kind of a Buster Brown haircut, uh, I, I think, in the, in the movie. I love your description. <laughs> but but uh, uh, Penelope Ann Miller. Uh, Lolita Davidovich, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio um, from Law and Order fame. Uh, uh, I mean, if you look at the cast of that movie, a lot of careers got uh, got started in that movie, including that was Chris Columbus, who went on to be the grand poobah Harry Potter. That was Chris's first directing job. He had written Gremlins, and I think he had written Goonies, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and he had uh, written a remake of Breathless. And uh, this was Chris's first chance to direct. And so we all launched each other. And I'm very proud of it. It's one of America's favorite movies. It's been enormously, enormously profitable for Disney. It was made for $7 million. And they have made their money back in multiples. And it's now in its it's third generation of people viewing it because people who were little kids then back in 1987, uh, uh, who are, you know, 40 to, to 50 now have introduced their kids to the movie. And I can tell from the residuals, it's still, it's, it's still popular. <laughs> yeah. I only just saw it this year, in fact, and, I got to say, objectively speaking, it still just very much holds up. It's just a well-constructed movie with great performances. It seems like a lot of fun to put to, to actually be on that set too and making it. It was it was a fabulous experience. It was my first really big, um, fairly large um, movie role. I'm, you know, the villain throughout throughout the the movie is sort of chasing the kids. One of the two villains, along with John Chandler. You know, Chris gave me a, a, a fabulous ending to the movie. Anyway, that movie in the uh, summer of 1987, you can look it up. We were number one, surprise, number one at the box office for a week or two. That movie, Rising Tide Lifts All Ships, that movie opened up every, it opened up Hollywood for me and got Hollywood very, very interested in me. I owe so much to that movie and to uh, uh, Deborah Hill and Linda Oakes, who were the producers, and to Chris Columbus. And I'm proud to have worked with all of those cast members. Uh, and I always delight when I see Elizabeth or um, uh, Penny Miller or or, or Anthony uh, and his great success in, in Rent. Uh, you know, and now he's part of Trek World. It's 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 wonderful. But Anthony was quite a uh, <laughs> he was quite an exuberant uh, and confident uh, uh, young kid. He was, I think he was 12. I, I, I believe Anthony. Anthony was just turning 13, going from 12 to 13 at the time. And he was there with his mom every day. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get to visit him on any of uh, the Broadway shows he worked on? 
No, but I I, I run into Anthony and the city a couple of times, and uh, it's always uh, very warm. I did not see uh, Rent when it was on Broadway, but uh, uh, we have we have come across crossed each other's paths, and it's always good to see him, and and it's great to see the tremendous uh, success that he's. He's had as a as an adult of of the kids. I think he's had the most um, substantial career. But you know, he's thirteen years old. And he was being hit on by uh, the credits call her Lolita uh, uh, Lola David. Uh, she then <laughs> evolved into Lolita Davidovich, who was uh, very much a, a, a leading actress in the nineties and. Uh, and the very early 2000s and is still around and is still a wonderful actress. But but he was he she played the college girl that that hit on Anthony. And uh, that was <laughs> that was something for for a 12 to 13 year old. <laughs> uh, Ron, I've got to ask you something uh, about a little bit of a more schlocky movie, uh, but it's you know, we got to do it here. It's a geeky Hello. show at the end of the day, too. But uh, sure. you were. You were in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's what David Absolutely. Hasselhoff. It's it's heralded as. It's an early Marvel film, but it's not one that's very well regarded. Uh, you were Gabriel Jones, who I don't know if you're aware, was actually the very first ever uh, black Marvel character. I did not know he was the first, but I did know I, when, when the Marvel comics came out, I told you I'm from the kid from the 60s. So I used to consume, you know, uh, Thor and X-Men and, 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 and Nick Fury and all these these, these characters and, and uh, the Hoff. <laughs> What a character. What a guy. He's a great guy, actually. Uh, He's an interesting person. But uh, the Hoff was the last uh, Caucasian Nick Fury. The the Hoff, after the Hoff, Nick Fury became Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, People may not know that, but... uh, uh, Much better choice. Yeah, Samuel's uh, uh, predecessor as as Nick Fury was uh, David Hasselhoff, and uh, yeah, that was uh, it, it, we made it up in Vancouver, and it it wasn't great. It wasn't a, a, a great <laughs> script. You you've seen it. You know what it was and what it wasn't. But it was a lot of fun, uh, to, because the Hoff is a lot of fun. He's a big personality, and he has. He has, at least when I worked with him, he has a good time at work. He believes in just he's he's a happy warrior. Or he was when I when when I met him, and uh, uh, he was on top of the world. You know, he's the king of Baywatch Kingdom, and uh, um, it, it, I just what I remember most was the 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 the, the time spent with him. He was uh, a fun guy. I, the last time I saw him, we were getting ready. Uh, was on the set was uh, a base camp for two, and uh, it looks like it, it seems like the Hoff had a scene that was cut from Ted Two, uh, but uh, that's a little trivia for your 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 audience, I guess, to know that the Hoff was scheduled to appear on Ted Two. I I know because I went and knocked on his trailer and and we greeted each other and and. Uh, laughed and uh and then he ended up in the, i guess on the cutting room floor but a little bit of trivia i just find it interesting because it's kind of a segue to my next question the next thing i want to ask about but yeah. uh, you know gabe jones in terms of marvel comics like he was really the first black character in any of the marvel comics to be a prominent character mm-hmm. and uh you know it kind of bugged me that in the film uh you know 
his character is really to be more of a, I don't want to say pencil pusher, but he doesn't get as much action as the Gabe Jones does in the comics. Cause in the comics, he's carrying a bugle. He's carrying a rifle. He's joining, you know, the Howling commandos on missions. Yeah. 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 The, well, they, they, they made him a suit, which is, I guess is why they came to me because you may have noticed I play have played and continue to play suits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bum in real life, but, uh, but in, in, in a good uh, 50% of my, I mean, bum cloth, clothing wise. Okay. Uh, but I mean, I'm blue jeans and t-shirt guy uh, uh, a lot of times, but, uh, and, uh, but a lot of my career, I'm, you know, a Brooks Brothers suit. And that's, I guess, part of the reason I was cast as Gabe um, <laughs> rather than, you know, some six pack guy my six-pack days were over by the time my career got really going but uh <laughs> uh so so yeah yeah uh, he gave was a, a scientist uh, was a kind of um, function like uh, the the gadget master for nick fury in in that uh, nick fury agent of steel you know sort of like i guess uh what's the character in james bond who comes up with the gadgets uh, q? q yes i i sort of played q to uh to to Nick Fury, the Gabe was in this manifestation. See, it kind of leads into my next question because I wanted to talk to you about Cinderella Man, and you uh, played Joe Jeanette. And you know, yes. the thing that bothered me, I just I just rewatched the movie because I, I do a lot of heavy research for these interviews, and I like to uh-huh. ingest as much as I can from the people I'm speaking with. And having just rewatched Cinderella Man, it's like basically you are in the opening scene, and then you're in the you're in the final fight, but you don't really say much, and it's just, it's disappointed to me because you know Joe Jeanette was the guy in real life that. You know, as a trainer, he's the man that trained James Braddock. But even beyond that, I mean, this is a man who fought Jack Johnson 10 times, Jim Johnson 10 times. He yes. was the first colored heavyweight champion. Yes. I mean, he's uh, not, maybe not the first, but he was one of them. Uh, like he's, He was a big deal at his time in his heyday. He was from New Jersey. Uh, and I felt uh-huh. like, you know, he should have had a lot more. So maybe you can help me out here. I mean, was there well, more for the character in the film? Let me know there wasn't. And I was the last person added to the major cast. And I think I was insisted upon by Universal and uh, Miramax um, because I don't think they wanted to do a boxing movie without a major African-American character. So I have to be very careful about what I say. Um, So, um, you know, people can read between the lines of what they, uh, I would say that I, uh, uh, my impression um, throughout was that um, the Joe Jeanette character was um, in the conception of this particular group of filmmakers an afterthought. And that's about all I want to say about that. All right. I won't budge too more about that in particular. I just know if, you know, I guess as the viewer, I can say this. Observation. I understand your observation and I certainly concur. I had a great time making the film. I I had a great time with, with, with Russell. I had a great time with the great Angelo Dundee because I'm a boxing fan. Um, I had quite a few boxing movie television show character credits on my resume. I enjoyed my time in Toronto with them very much. I enjoyed Paul Giamatti very much. Um, uh, uh, It was uh, in many ways a wonderful experience, but I will say that um, I think that your observations about the film and the character are correct. 
And uh, I will simply say that uh, I don't think I was part of the, that that character was um, prominent in the conception of the filmmakers. And uh, I think that I was in the movie by studio insistence. I will say, you don't have to comment on this one on my comment here, but uh, you know, one of the things that bothered me a lot is how any half time I'd see your character, he'd be blocked by Paul Giamatti or something else to be covering his face. It was just one of those annoying things I noticed. I really hated it because, you know, Joe Jeanette played a bigger role in James Braddock's life than the movie shows. Um, but we'll leave it at that. But, uh, you know, I, one, one, the one thing I, th- I thank, thank you for that observation. Um, the one thing I would say is um, you have to look at the filmmaker and look at their film filmography and, you know, that's it. Yeah, I do want to add, I'm from a combat sports journalism background. So I've covered boxing, UFC, MMA, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to be honest, on this show, I never really talk about it much. So I would love to hear any stories or any memories you have of Angelo Dundee. Oh, I loved him. So I loved the maestro. Uh, he called me the professor and I called him the maestro. And we got along fabulously because he soon figured out that I was a real boxing fan. And so I got to spend every day with Angelo and I got to ask him every question or any question that occurred to my my mind about Muhammad Ali, about Ray Leonard, about Carmen Basilio, about the boxing game, about um, uh, his observations and thoughts. He introduced me while we were up there. He introduced me to George Chavallo, who came by the set. Uh, we shot that a lot of that in the old Maple Leaf Garden, the, the legendary Maple Leaf Garden is where where the, the fight scenes were shot. And George Chavallo, who was a great Canadian heavy heavyweight, as you, you probably well know, um, um, uh, Muhammad Ali pounded him for 15 rounds and couldn't get George Chavallo out of there. George Chavallo had a head that was made of granite. <laughs> uh, but he introduced me to George. He introduced me to the uh, um, Braddock family when they came by the set. Angelo introduced me to Norman Mailer. And I got to have a chat, just me and Norman Mailer at lunch one day, which I will be forever grateful to Angelo for. But Angelo was was uh, an amazing font of knowledge, a very positive, bright, uh, spirit, uh, effervescent and, 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 uh, loquacious. And, uh, uh, he was, he, he, he had a great affection for Russell and he, Russell Crowe and Russell for him. Uh, Angie, Angie said to me, you know, he, he would watch Russell and he said, you know, Ronnie, he said, if I had gotten this kid, I could have made something out of him. You know, so anybody who thinks Russell Crowe's toughness or athletic ability is totally uh, fake. Um, I'm telling you what Angelo Dundee told me to my face. I'll never forget. We were watching Russell in the ring with a young Canadian amateur light heavyweight going at him. And he says, you know, Ronnie. They were sparring. He says, you know, I could have made something. I got this kid early. I could have made something out of him. <laughs> so one other thing before we jump into Trek stuff here, and yeah. uh, that's you were in Boston Legal for several episodes throughout the entire yes. series. Uh, yes. mm-hmm. Judge Willard Reese and yes. uh, 
you know, that show has a lot of Star Trek alumni in it. I mean, off the bat, we've got Shatner and Renee Abrazawa in the film, in the series. Uh, but you've also got, I think actually one of the episodes you did, I don't think you were on uh, in any scenes with them, but you had Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips. Um, so yes. I'm just curious if you have any memories of working with any of, you know, either Shatner, Renee, or any, well, any well, Trek folk. I, you know, it's funny, uh, in preparation for, for this interview, I went back and rewatched my episodes, which I hadn't seen in years, because uh, contrary to what people may believe, actors do not sit around watching themselves in movies. <laughs> uh, uh, that way lies insanity, uh, as in Sunset Boulevard, you know? I'm ready for uh, my close-up, Mr. Canada. Yeah. Uh, so I hadn't seen these episodes in, uh, I'm not actually watched full episodes. If, if I come across them, I might watch them for a minute or two. And then, you know, cause I was there. And I, uh, but um, I watched all the, the episode of all three modern treks that I was in. And uh, I was thinking about Renee who passed away uh, recently, as I'm sure your viewers know uh, within the last year, I think Renee, he was a lovely, lovely gentleman. Um, and he introduced me to the very interesting uh, and unusual uh, William Shatner while I was in Boston Legal. Uh, so, uh, so Renee, who had been very warm and, and gracious and, and knew what it was like to be a guest star, had, you know, been been very gracious and friendly to me. And, and uh, we were walking across... Uh, uh, one of the secondary sound stages, and I uh, saw Renee coming toward me with with uh, uh, Mr. Shatner, who was uh, apparently either headed to or from makeup. He had the paper towels all around his collar, which is the telltale thing that people <laughs> have recently been in the makeup chair or on their way back to it. And Renee, we're walking toward each other, and he says, oh, Ron, he says, uh, have, have you met... Uh, uh, Bill Shatner? Uh, I said, no, I haven't. I said, uh, pleasure to meet you, Mr. Shatner. My, my, he says, uh, Bill, this is Ron Canada. And William Shatner, in one of the strangest encounters I've ever had, said to me, he looked at me and said, and so am I. <laughs> and proceeded on his way. I, I still puzzle it. What the heck happened there? <laughs> Uh, he was unusual, to say the least. Um, Armin, I knew from uh, the episodes, uh, the episode of Deep Space Nine that I did. Uh, he was one of my witnesses uh, uh, when I played Counselor Chapak uh, in the uh, in the Deep Space Nine episode called Rules of en Engagement, which is sort of a, a legal courtroom thing staged on D Deep Space Nine. And uh, so I, 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 I knew uh, Armin and then um, Ethan uh, I worked with on um, uh, the episode I did of Voyager, which was called Juggernaut. Um, so we had scenes together, but uh, did not encounter them ever on, on the Boston legal uh, set, for, except for that uh, crossing the paths with Mr. Shatner. And I think um, I think Renee was in my courtroom once uh, uh, in one episode, but uh, he was a lovely man uh, and, a, and a superb and gifted actor and an important member of the, uh, of the American stage and the Broadway community and so forth. If I can help demystify uh, the Shatner 
anecdote. I don't know if you're aware. Uh, Shatner's actually from Canada, so maybe that's why. Maybe he was confused or something. Uh, maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe when Renee said, this is Ron Canada, maybe that was the reason for his reply. It was, it was an odd moment. It was strange. <laughs> That sums up Shatner in one word, strange. Yes, yes. He's, like, as I say, an un- unusual personality. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise-E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel, is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes, or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So, why don't you check it out and judge for yourself, or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Ron, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion, and let's kick things off with your first appearance of three in the franchise, and that was in TNG. You were in the episode The Masterpiece Society as Martin yes. Benbeck. Yes. Uh, so do you remember uh, much about the audition process for that show? Had you auditioned for Trek previously? Um, I think I probably had Junie, Junie Lowry Johnson um, uh, and and a partner, I think David Serma. They 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 were in office, you know, in, in an actor's career. You have offices that really like you. You have casting directors that that. Um, you know, uh, champion your career that they really believe in your talent and they call you in again and again 
on different shows. Sometimes they'll call you in multiple times on a show, especially if the producers respond to you, um, but you're not quite right for one role. They'll, they'll keep bringing you in. And Junie Lowry Johnson, uh, there's a good chunk of my career that uh, uh, I, I owe to uh, Junie putting me in the room with the producers. Um, so I don't know if it was the first time or maybe it was the second audition um, that I went in on Trek and I got uh, Martin. And um, um, I don't remember, you know, <laughs> there are at this point thousands and thousands of auditions. Um, I, I say to people, you know, I've had my career is supposedly a success and I do believe it to, in my terms, it's a success. And uh, I tell young actors, and I say, you know what my batting average is? Auditions uh, successful to auditions had? I said, I bat a solid 0. 0.100. And I said, that's a very good average. That's an actor's life. Uh, so there are a lot of auditions. I don't remember that one particularly. I remember doing the show, though. Um, and I looked at the work today, and... When years pass, it's not so difficult to look at the work. And I went, oh, that was that was OK. That was OK. And I was remembering uh, uh, Day Young and uh, uh, the actor John, um, uh, who, who played the lead. And uh, um, and that was the first time I worked with Patrick and, uh, you know, that and, and, and uh, Patrick and, 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 and Jonathan Frakes and LeVar. Um, yeah, good memory. So let's talk a little bit about Martin because Martin is a character who's basically just angry all the time. But the way that you're acting as the character, you know, Martin's angry on a scale of one to ten, and your body language and your cadence it very much informs the audience of what level of rage he's on. Um, so I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about how you found this character, what you, what you did to make him not just be you know angry all the time, but just the same flat anger, but kind of having these different varying degrees of anger and, and portrayal of information within that. Well, you know, uh, you're right. He's got uh, Martin's hair was, was always on fire. But but, you, you, you know, I took it, it. He was a conservative and I haven't gotten to play conservatives that much in my life. Um, he was a political uh, conservative in the in, in, in the true in the small C sense. He was trying very much to maintain the status quo. He was tasked. His reason for being was to protect the status quo, the rules. And um, the rules were being threatened at a level that he had never encountered uh, before. And he had never seen this level of violation. And um, uh, the, the, the leader of, 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 of the planet, um, I don't recall the John's character's name right now, but the, the, the leader of the planet, he, Martin is a close advisor and a counselor uh, who's used to being consulted. And I, I, I just started from, well, these guys have worked together. They're together in every scene. They're talking in a very personal way to each other. So I assumed they were colleagues. And there is a kind of anger or, or, or when we lose temper with those we know best or we're disappointed with those we know best, there's a different coloration to it. And so it wasn't always anger. Sometimes it was just disappointment. At other times it was um, desperation to get him to see the light. 
and my fury was more at the uh, most directed at the invaders, the the violators, the people who had brought us the problem. But I was still trying to win him back, uh, to get him back to his senses. I was trying to deal, you know, there was some, some uh, uh, in a way, with him and uh, Day uh, Young's character uh, um, with tough love. So, you know, it's my job. What I get hired to do is to bring, as I say, texture and dimension around the stars, the big money, the persona that the, or personas that the uh, uh, audience tunes in to see. And that means part of my job is to make the storytelling as vivid as I possibly can. Uh, If I have my greatest strength, I think as an actor is my ability to read the literature and uh, to carry out the writer's intent. And um, you don't do that. Very few good writers, you don't get cast usually on a good TV show on successful TV shows to play one dimension. Um, I've never uh, tried to in my life. Um, you, you, you get the job by telling the story in each scene. Um, having, you know, goals and having, you know, a story that you want to tell with that character in the scene. Um, so, um, from what you say, you saw, you know, some of that. And um, then I'm, I'm grateful. Then that means that to some degree uh, I was successful. And they brought me back for two more shows. So the two different series. So I guess I, they thought so, too. Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind a mid-interview compliment, and I'm going to talk about this more when we, when we get to DS9, especially, uh, you know, hearing you talk right now, hearing your emotional vocabulary and what you're putting that into with your acting, uh, you know, it's very apparent. I feel like your, your expressiveness and your ability to translate, you know, a line into giving it an emotion that's not just the most obvious way to handle handle that emotion. Uh, you know, I, I really think it's one of the very wonderful things about your acting that I admire. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. Now, do you recall uh, any of the shoot days and working with Marina, working with Jonathan, working with Patrick? Uh, you know, what, what were those days like? Well, you know, uh, at, at Star Trek commanded a huge amount of the Paramount Studios, the Paramount lot, which is, you know, everybody knows the legendary arch over the, the entrance to the lot. And it's not the big, huge, colossal thing that, you know, we, we you get from the movies, the Paramount gate. But I loved going through the Paramount Gate. It always made me feel, wow, I I really am in Hollywood. But on this Paramount lot, which is on Melrose Avenue uh, in in, uh, very uh, uh, central Hollywood, uh, Star Trek had three working huge sound stages and a lot of auxiliary buildings. And um, I got an idea of the scope and the importance of this uh, show to Paramount when I went there and saw the, the, the stages and the, the elaborate sets and uh, you know, just every, everything that was involved. And uh, what I most remember, and that was a long time ago, you know, it's been some almost uh, what, 25 years now. Uh, I remember the rapport and the camaraderie between Patrick, 
uh, Jonathan and uh, LeVar, uh, particularly, especially Jonathan and, 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 and LeVar. But they, they just they had figured out a way to make it fun. And they genuinely seemed to like each other and enjoy each other and be having fun, which isn't always the case on on super successful shows. One thing that you, you, you one way, you know, you're on a successful television show, you can tell right away is there's a lot more relaxation because people have had four or five years. They've made a lot of money. They're looking at making a lot more money. Uh, but um, sometimes people fall into their separate you know, camps and so forth and just don't have that. They're over it and, and um, they do the work and, but they don't, you know, have that much to do with each other. But these guys, uh, particularly the next generation crew just seem to have a genuine bond um, that you could feel. And um, later I got to, um, have a much closer working relationship with Patrick and to um, to socialize with with him some and and um, that that's real that 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 rapport that they had um, because I guess they were the little engine that could they came out of nowhere in a way they went against a huge existing thing the original Trek and they won they made a new uh, they expanded the fan base, made a new fan base. They they uh, were accepted by the uh, Star Trek world, the original world. And um, I, I, I think that there was a joy in, in being on a winning team, uh, like a winning sports team. They they had that kind of swash in their buckle and that kind of of of. Uh, um, well, yeah, I'll use the word love for each other, at, at least at that time when I was around them. And that was palpable. I think that's a good choice of words because, you know, seeing them at conventions to this day, it, it still feels like nothing's changed. So love is, I think, a very, very correct word in this situation. Yeah, they're, 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 I know that uh, Patrick is close uh, 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 to Marina, to Jonathan. Uh, I didn't work with Brent Spiner, but um, they, they were fond of Brent. Um, LeVar, who, who I have the highest regard for. Um, maybe we'll talk about that later um, directorially. But um, yeah, yeah, they, that, that is my the memory that I take away from that. And, you know, sometimes I had to watch the episode again to remember everything that happened in it. But from an actor's point of view, what you remember is the days you spent at work. You know, you spend a lot more time between scenes than you do shooting scenes. Um, that takes a lot. It's a, a lot longer process to make a television show or a movie than it is to watch it or even the actual shooting. A lot of it is waiting and uh, sitting around in the chairs and uh, being in your trailer and, uh, uh, you know, exchanging stories with people. And uh, uh, so you remember the sets and, 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 and uh, companies where there was a joyous feeling, they stick out. We will definitely be talking about LeVar Burton in a few minutes because uh, I've got plenty of questions about that. But, uh, you know, since you did mention you had just rewatched the episodes, uh, I just want to ask what you think now looking at the episode as a, as a final product. Did you like it? Uh, yeah, Masterpiece Society. Yes, I did. And here's what I, I, it struck me today. It was very thoughtful. It was very... Um, 
a very serious-minded adult um, themed. The thing that made made uh, Trek uh, famous. It, it, it wasn't just an action shoot 'em up, or I guess what some people call a space opera. It wasn't, uh, you know, about uh, there was very little quote unquote action. Um, it was about human behavior and psychology and and social issues and big issues. The big issue of social engineering and um and and personal freedom and uh, 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 autonomy um all those kinds of things and um i i i think i said oh this is a piece of television i'm proud to to have been a part of because it was um it was smart it was a smart episode so i liked it yes so let's move into Deep Space Nine. But before we start talking about rules of engagement, uh, I just found this out the other day. Um, you were actually up for the part of Martok, and you almost had that part I read. Uh, yes, with my old roommate and dear friend to this day, John G. Hertzler. Um, I, I've had very few roommates in my life, but there was a period uh, in uh, 1977, 78, where I lived in a house uh, off DuPont Circle in uh, Washington, D.C. with uh, uh, three roommates, two, two, two gals and, 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 and John, um, who invited me to join them. They had an opening in the house and he invited me to, 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 to move in there with them. Um, um, we had been doing lunchtime theater in government buildings in, in Washington, in, Anyway, uh, so John and I uh, became very close uh, then. And uh, Ron Moore uh, had liked my audition so much that he called me at home that night uh, after my audition. He said, we'll call back tomorrow. And he says, here's what. And I'm here in my apartment in Hollywood. And here's, you know writer producer guy telling me he liked my audition and tweaks that he wanted uh, me to make for the callback. And I went in and I, I thought I executed well. And I didn't know that John was coming in, you know, a, a couple of people after me and uh, he apparently wowed them. And, um, you know, there's always somebody who's 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 better in any competitive business. And that day, John was better than me. And, uh, you know, I was thunderstruck that I didn't get the part. So I had my agents call and ask and they and they said that uh, that my audition had been great, but that um, this guy, John Hertzler, had come in. And just blown them away. So, <laughs> you know, um, uh, I, I last I talked to John. Let's see, about two months two months ago, my phone rang and he was calling me from where he is now in Ithaca, New York. I guess he's he's up there teaching theater and directing. But uh, we had a we had a great chat chat about his his daughter Hannah. And, uh, yeah. So I lost and I lost to one of my dear friends and at that time one of my closest friends in the world. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to lose, why not make it to someone like that? Yeah. Yeah. It made it, it made it actually easier to swallow because, you know, um, it, it, John went on and spent it to, to uh, do the character extremely well. And then to be um, a big hit at conventions and, and uh, uh, it allowed him to 
to uh, raise his daughter and take care of his family. And, you know, it all worked out. Yeah, he, he's one of those guys I'd love to talk to sometime too. And uh, maybe one day it'll happen. But let's talk about you now your episode. Well, he's in Ithaca. You look for him. He's, he's, he's somewhere in the <laughs> Cornell community. You'll find him. Oh, I'm going to go up there for sure. I'm going to get my friend. He's got his Cornell alumni card. We're going to go up there and barge our way in the doors. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk now about your episode from season four, Rules of Engagement. And uh, you are the Klingon named Chipak. You are the lawyer from the Klingon homeworld. You're trying to get Worf extradited to the Klingon home planet to deal with stuff that's going on in that episode. Um, but let's talk about that makeup process because you are a Klingon, as we mentioned, and the Klingons, they don't have an easy day in the makeup chair. Uh, so what do you remember from that part of the show? Well, Michael, uh, I remember that I had to come in about 4.30. Um, I lived about um, at that hour of the morning with no traffic, without speeding. I lived about uh, eight minutes from the Paramount Gate. I remember my call was the unbelievable hour, I believe, of 4.30 in the morning. But that's when you were getting a startup makeup job. And I remember um, Michael Westmore, isn't it? The Make a Famous Wake Up Family. Yeah. Michael was waiting there for me in the morning himself. And and we began a process that went on for uh, more than three hours while he fitted me for things he made that... <laughs> a fantastic set of teeth that I have, um, <laughs> including a fang uh, for one of my canines, a fang that kind of was on my lip outside of my mouth. Uh, he, 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 he did all of that personally. Um, uh, from then on, it was handed over from, I think he did the second day. Um, and then from then on, I was in the hands of the assistants once it had been worked out and perfected. But that was certainly the longest time I'd ever been in a makeup chair. And uh, uh, it was a very interesting um, experience. I, I don't complain about it. It was quite a transformation. You know, it, 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 it uh, was fascinating. Uh, to have him work on me or, and work with me because it was a whip process because he's always communicating and asking what is comfortable and how that feels and, and uh, so forth. Um, and they are masters of making the makeup as involved as it is, as comfortable as is possible. Um and uh, they take wonderful care of you at the end of the day uh, where there's a makeup taking off process that lasts the better part of an hour um, because they also make sure to take care of your skin. Um, uh, so, um, but it became so comfortable that by the second day or late in the first day, I didn't forgot I had it on. And so when people walking around a lot, when people were looking at me strangely, it took me a moment to to realize, oh, yeah, I've got this, <laughs> this stuff on. So um, it was it was quite an experience. But that first day, it was uh, three hours plus. And then each day thereafter, um, it uh, whittled. It was whittled down. But uh, that's what made uh, Star Trek also such a great job. The overtime. Wow. (laughs) We've spoken to a lot of actors who have had to do the heavy prosthetics for their characters. And they've all said different things about how it will affect 
the way they act the character. And so, you know, I want to make again an observation about your style of acting, what you do. And something I've noticed through the different roles I've seen you in is how expressive you are and and how you make the most out of what you can. Uh, And depending on the language of the scene, depending on the language of the show you're on, how you adapt it for that. So, you know, in the case of Chipak here, you know, there's a lot of body language because you can't exactly use your eyebrows as much. You can't really use as many facial expressions. Um, So you're using a lot more body language that I picked up on. So, I noticed that Chipak is usually very hunched over. His hands are always clutched. There's uh, there's a lot more with the hands in this episode in particular. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, how you chose to approach this character, uh, not just speaking the lines, but becoming the character. Well, you know, it's it's funny you talk about uh, uh, the expressiveness. That That's, you know... Uh, that's a big help on a, on a stage when you got 500 people and you got to get it out to a distance. But in film, it is a hindrance. <laughs> it's something that actually, yeah, I have to learn and concentrate and work against in, in uh, things where I don't have the prosthetics. I was watching the episode again this morning uh, to, to recall it. And um, uh, I noticed some of the things you noticed um, because, again, that was a long time ago, I believe, for, for uh 1996 or seven or something like that so um there have been many performances in between so um i i was i had to refresh my memory but um in the case of the the makeup it actually i didn't have to worry so much about my own rubber face because i had a rubber face over my rubber face so that um uh, i could be uh, as a Klingon broader than I would be if, um, you know, uh, if I were playing as, as I was when I was playing Martin Benduck or when I was playing, when I would be playing a, 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 a judge on the affair or something or, or West Wing, you know, I, I, um, you don't want to be doing too much with your face because it distracts people from the part of your face that people really watch in a close-up, something I call the golden rectangle, from the bottom of your lower lip to the top of your eyebrows to the outer edges of both your eyes. That rectangle is what we watch when we watch uh, movie and television performances. And so everything that's in the close-up, that is. So everything that moves in a close-up other than that Uh, is a distraction. Um, All great movie stars and all great film actors, television actors, they have one essential quality to begin with. They are still. They have tremendous stillness. They don't, their bodies don't rock and move in the frame. Their heads don't bob. (laughs) So many of them don't, I envy, don't have much of a blink reflex. (laughs) So, I mean, um, Patrick is an example. He's extremely still. And so you get pulled into that area, which I described as the golden rectangle to look for meaning. You, 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 you don't want to go toward the lens. You want to draw the lens to you. Um, The lens is is skittish. It's like a, a small animal. You know, if you go at it, it runs away, you know, definitely see that and and you know watching this episode again having just seen the other two episodes that were in, in star trek i felt like uh chipak i really got drawn in that's a great way to put it. i was very much drawn in uh and it definitely helps the way that lavar burton set these shots up because like you know the way i do these 
watch throughs is I'll be taking screenshots as I go along to use on social media. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't stop taking screenshots of Japak because he was always so composed wonderfully in every shot he's in. Uh, and just, there's always just something about him, something magnetic about this character. Thank you. I, I'm very, I watched it today. I said, okay, I'm proud of that work. I've always been proud of that episode. Um, it was one of the biggest responsibilities in terms of pages and lines in an episode of TV that I have ever had. Um, I'm in every scene um, uh, or three quarters of the scene and I'm talking and having dialogue and I'm interacting with just almost the entire cast. And um, it, it, it was, you know, and LeVar was so supportive and challenging at the same time. Um, but in so far as, as making the character work is physicality, you know, it's funny, you, I don't make sort of mechanical decisions I'm realizing about characters' bodies. I believe very much in the actor's imagination. I believe in reading the text very thoroughly and very carefully, and then letting the imagination um, go to work about the circumstances and the scenes and breathing as the character. And then the rest of it sort of forms itself around. I, I was watching my hands in that episode today and I didn't realize how much I was doing the steepled hands, you know. Um, yeah, your hands are doing a lot of storytelling in this episode. I really enjoyed looking at those and watching what you were doing with them. Yes, yes. But I, I, I won't tell you. I'll tell you that I was watching. I was surprised. Everything you, you prepare and then you prepare so that you're free in the moment of the performance so that you're free to be in the world and you're not operating the character like a puppeteer, like a marionette. Um, That way lies bad acting because it's not organic. It's not spontaneous. Once you make that decision, then you have to listen. Um, What I like very much about the performance, which also informs the body language is the listening. It's very there are very few things more important in acting, film acting or stage than listening. I never learn the other person's lines. None. I never, I learn my lines. I do not learn my scene partner's lines. I expend no energy on that in my entire career. Why? It's purposeful. I want to listen. I want to respond in an immediate way to the stimulus that's being given. I want to hear the information that is being spoken and not be listening. Oh, there were, there were, there were. Oh, now myself. You know, I, I don't want to, ever to be doing that. I, I know I learned the cue. I find out what my cue is, what the, the last couple of words, but I want to be listening to what they're saying before they get to the queue. I want to actually have my character be hearing them and responding. And in this particular episode, I feel like I did satisfactory, very satisfactory work in that regard. I, I would say far more than just satisfactory. I thought in particular this episode, your scenes with Avery, you know, you're talking about listening and reacting and responding. Uh, Avery seemed like an amazing scene partner for you to work with. And something I've noticed with him uh, when we talked to other guests who got to do scenes with him, 
is he very much feeds off having an adversarial counterpart, uh, which Chapak yes, very much yes. provides. He, he liked he liked that very much. I think it got it got him um, engaged <laughs> uh, at, at, at that point in the, in the series. Um, I think, you know, I, I think um, what I, I was able to bring something to that episode that uh, engaged um, uh, Avery and engaged Michael um, uh, in, 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 in a particular in a particular way, or at least uh, there were some people around the production I remember who who commented uh, in that regard. Um, um, and and I, I like to think, you know, I, as I said, uh, my job as a character actor is to create texture around the money, the stars, but I also um, want to bring stimulation to them and I want to challenge them um, because usually, more often than not, sometimes you're an ally of the star, but more often, or the regular, the series regular, you're, or I get brought in to pose a problem, an obstacle. And you can't have a strong character in, in a drama if they don't have, if they're not overcoming a dimensional obstacle. And um, Chapak is the personification of obstacle for for Captain Cisco and for Worf. And so the more dimensional I could make that or in any role in, in, in any of the, 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 the shows I, I, I appear in or films I appear in, the more that actor gets to bloom. Acting together is it, it's it's a group activity. It's not a it's not a solo activity. I mean, I know there are people who don't like one man shows. I've never wanted to do one. They have no interest. It's like playing playing with a, another good musician. Um, you know, they stimulate you. And I'd like to think at this point that I I'm a good enough musician so that I stimulate uh, my scene partners and we get a good back and forth going a good, you know, that I hit the ball over the net hard enough <laughs> so that, so to speak, or with enough spin so that they have to engage their skills to get it back across the net, uh, if I can use that sports metaphor. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you probably don't spend your days watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine like I do, but I can tell you no, just I from... <laughs> I can tell you from watching, you know, other episodes uh, of guests I've spoken to, uh, you know, Caitlin Hopkins comes to mind because she did an episode where she was again similar kind of uh, adversarial character to Avery. I felt like he was like he really brought his A game to this episode, and you guys played off each other yes. so well. Like I feel like, and that's kind of a topic I want to talk about too. This episode is, um, you know, we mentioned earlier this is Lavar Burton directed this one, and the stars of this episode. This is a Michael Dorn centric episode with Avery Brooks as his support and Ron yes. Canada as the advocate going against him. This is basically like, I'm trying to find like the best way to say it, but this is basically like a black run episode with black characters as the stars. And I feel like that really kind of brought together something different that we don't normally see on Deep Space Nine. Uh, yes. Or see on any other television show. <laughs> really? Uh, when, in, in, in my career, it's not something, you know, it's funny for us three uh, African-American uh, male actors, mature male actors to be on screen together was a rare occurrence. Uh, I can remember doing an episode of, of, of Seventh Heaven with uh, Keith. Um, oh, God. 
Keith David. Keith David, yes, Keith David and 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 uh, Mr. Collins, and uh, we're the, the the three of us uh, together, and uh, well, Keith and I laughing, saying to 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 Stephen, man, you're participating in something rare, the two of us on screen together at the same time. Uh, this is a, a rare thing, and it is, in fact, the one and only time you will ever see Ron Canada and Keith David, who are contemporaneous, who are uh, friendly uh, colleagues, and whose career are, uh, careers are um, contemporaneous almost completely. That's the only time you'll ever see us on screen together. Uh, so for me and Avery and Michael to, to be there, I, I call it also... The, the duel of the 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 the, uh, the episode of the dueling bassos, you know, because <laughs> you have three three kind of big voices, three guys who are kind of known for their voices uh, going at each other. Although I was a little handicapped by the teeth, uh, uh, but um, yeah, it was it was it was special for that regard. And again, it was under the guidance of Lavar, who is a man of such intelligence and dignity and a director of such skill and uh, preparation and confidence and uh, enjoyed so much uh, confidence from the crew, you, something you could feel uh, that they loved going to war with this guy. And um, he had the respect of Avery and, 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 uh, and Michael. Uh, my impression of DS9 was that the camaraderie was not the same as what I talked about in SNG, but there was certainly um, uh, respect um, all, all around. And um, LeVar is just a, is just a leader. He's as um, he's as good, maybe um, the best director of television that it's ever been my um, pleasure to work with. I, I think I know, given my film career, a little bit about directors, in ter especially in terms of their interactions with actors. And, um, you know, I have worked with Robert Reiner and William Friedkin and a couple other people like that. In my mind, LeVar is as good as anybody. He has my gratitude for that performance as well, for helping me and guiding me and supporting me. Thoroughly. Can you describe a little bit about what his directing style is like? Confidence and relaxation. The two things that make good acting, he displays as a director. And you learn from, I direct some stage myself, and you like to think you learn from every good director that you ever have. And LeVar just exudes confidence on the set and um it is it is contagious um he and he, he also his preparation is complete and total he's not a director who's always looking at his script he's not looking at uh he's not looking at anything except watching you you know he, he he's not glued to video village um there's never any sense of tension or panic. He he has this this um, residing calm, which in that res respect he's like John Sayles, uh, the great film director. He is just serene. Um, 
he 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 gives off an aura or at, at least in my that week of working with him of he couldn't there's nowhere else he'd want to be except right where he is and how we're going to get this done because we're us and how could we fail you know and people he just creates an atmosphere where everyone is respected and where where you can tell the crew knows that they are respected and regarded and they want to please him and there's an efficiency because he is prepared which is the thing that actors and i think crew people will tell you they most want from a director that they that he or she be prepared and to know that text in and out, up and down. And you also, he also has the advantage of having, being a fine actor. And I'm sorry, uh, in my experience, the best directors have always been people who have acted themselves. They have the most useful information to convey and know how to convey it. And they know what not to say and how not to get in your, in, in, in your way. Um, I can say that about Kevin Hooks. Uh, I can say it again about Rob Reiner um, as, as, as directors who are actors who stand out in my mind and uh, who I've admired in my career. But LeVar, top of the list, top, top of the list for me. And I looked at that performance today and I thanked him again. And I thought about what a superlative uh, director he was. I've only ever gone to one Star Trek convention ever in my life. And I basically got one autograph that day and one photo taken. And that was with LeVar Burton. And I told him that day when I met him, I, I don't want, I didn't want to be Jordy LaForge. I want to be LeVar Burton because, you know, I grew up with the reading rainbow. I grew up seeing him on Star Trek. He became then this amazing director. He has this amazing, wonderful podcast. Uh, he's such an inspiring individual. So I'm really happy to hear that he's just so great to work with in that regard. He is class personified, in my opinion. So let's talk about your final appearance in the Star Trek franchise, and that is in Voyager. You were in season five. Episode yes. is Juggernaut, and you were yes. a Malon named Fessick. And uh, yes. somehow they managed to get you into even more makeup and an even bigger outfit. Tell us about that. <laughs> that was some suit. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't that uncomfortable. I was amazed looking at it, how how uh, they were so amazing, that production company, how it was so fitted so precisely. And I was able to move in it, you know, uh, even at my you know, advanced age then, I guess I was, I was, I was about, uh, yeah, I was 50 then. And I was looking at, I was probably quite, quite, quite spry and able to crawl around on my knees. And, but, but uh, that makeup actually, uh, even though it looked more elaborate, it wasn't as elaborate as, as, as Chapak. Um, uh, but it was, it was, it was quite a bit, but it would just wasn't as big. It was more, uh, there seem to be more separate pieces uh, to Chapak. Yeah, I, I uh, Robert Beltran was was a friend, so I was happy to be be on the show uh, with Bob. Um, and I was happy again watching the episode and remembering it, and watching the three in a row. I was happy at the the differentiation between the three characters and how very different Fessick was from Chapak. Uh, he was he was a, he was a much uh, gentler soul. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I was, I, I was quite satisfied with, with, with the effort with him as well today when I watched it. Um, 
I, I would have been more distressed had I watched it, you know, after the first time or had I watched it uh, two months after doing it. It's it's the more proximate you are to the performance, it's the, the harder it is to see um, the performance and to be um, to gain some objectivity about it. But, uh, yeah, it was that was uh, uh, that was a very interesting, again, a big responsibility. What I liked about Trek World, as you can see, after, especially after Martin Benbick, um, Big Rick, Rick Berman, and and uh, became comfortable with me having big responsibilities in in uh, in episodes, and I'm very proud of that because Star Trek was demanding. Um, you had to be able to handle dialogue. That's why so many actors with classical backgrounds uh, are all over the Trek universe because you learn to speak to do the Greeks and you learn to do Shakespeare, you have the necessary muscle um, vocally and mentally and, and linguistically to be able to handle the dialogue, which is demanding. You gotta take that, a lot of techno talk and make it sound like human speech and like it's every day. Um, so yeah, it was fun. Speaking of demanding, this was a seemingly very physically demanding episode. Like you said, you're basically crawling around in some parts while you're doing dialogue. You're crawling around through tunnels. Uh, it's very dark. It's very smoky. A lot of steam. Yes, uh, yes. I heard I read Ethan Phillips said this is like a really challenging episode of film because of everything going on. And uh, I know Roxanne had to do a lot of ADR for this episode due to all the noise. Uh, what was the experience like filming this episode? It was it was it was it was vigorous. It was it was I, I, I couldn't I don't think I could have done it today or there would have been a lot more stuntman doing scenes. Um, you know, like I said, it's 20 years later. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, it's no secret. I'm 71. It's all over the Internet. Um, uh, back then, I was about 50. Um, it was it was uh, it was demanding. It was challenging. Um, and it was a lot of it. The set was very dark, actually. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of that stuff on the bridge and the, the steam and the, I don't know, dry ice or whatever it was, they were employing the lots of smoke. And uh, it wasn't always easy to even see the other actors. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, it, it was it was fun, though, uh, talk about adversarial uh, working with uh, with uh, with Roxanne, who has become quite the director of television, I'm sure as many of your uh, people who who uh, follow your show know, um, uh, we uh, we we went at each other in a pretty interesting way, and I and I I like to think I created again some a challenging texture for her to go against uh, uh, her and 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 Kate Mulgrew and. Uh, uh, which are, were, were basically uh, the people that I did the scenes with um, and a little bit with Bob before his character gets conveniently knocked out to leave, <laughs> uh, to leave uh, uh, Roxanne in, char uh, in charge of the situation. Yeah, this episode was a lot more like the movie Aliens as opposed to an episode of Star Trek. It's a pretty different type of episode. Yeah, it's more, much more action. I would say I was looking at the three episodes, and I would say uh, the first one it was was a a, 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 a think piece, uh, the masterpiece society. I'd say uh, the, the 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 second uh, piece was a courtroom drama, the Deep Space Nine, and this third one was action. It was action. 
So you've gotten to work with on screen Patrick Stewart and TNG. You got to work with Avery Brooks on DS9. And here you are with Kate Mulgrew. Yes. Uh, so what would you say would be the differences between uh, those three Starfleet captains and working with them as scene partners? Well, well they're, they're all uh, superb professionals. You know, like any, and you get to a certain level and especially you, 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 you're on a television show you're a guest star, you have to step onto the moving train. And what you're expected to provide along with the artistic stuff, the texture is efficiency. You have to gain those people's confidence immediately that they know that you're not going to be blowing takes and slowing production down. And you're not, uh, you can be trusted in scenes that you're equal to the job. And um, I think I was able to establish that in all three cases. I only had the one last scene with Patrick and um, uh, where he comes down to the planet, et cetera. But I think I made a good enough impression on him that we ended up doing quite a bit on stage together later on. Um, But uh, yeah, they're all at a certain level, you know, you're in the major leagues. And um, if I can use, again, a sports metaphor, if you're in the major leagues, whether you're uh, in the start all star in a starting lineup or you're uh, the kind of guy who comes off the bench for 100 games a year, 300, 400 at bats, you're expected to be able to hit a fastball. Everybody in the majors can hit a fastball. And. uh so they all quickly came to understand that and they all are consummate professionals and um they knew that i could do my job and um that's what they expect uh they have pages and pages to learn for next week uh they had multiple scenes to do and kate mulgrew's scene uh, 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 uh instance um, it, it, it was one of those a light week for her because she is she only has two or three scenes in in the show. Um, so that's the way on a long running series that you give your lead a, a kind of a semi week off in that they don't have to carry such a burden because it's very hard work. It's very hard work to be a lead on a television series for for 20 plus the way they used to be, 20, 22, 26 episodes. It's hard. Um, you're there uh, 10, 12 hour days. You're handsomely compensated, but there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. And my hat's off to those people. And I'm grateful for them. And, and I just try to... Uh, enhance what they're doing to fit into the groove of what the show is about to deliver what I delivered in the audition room um, and um, keep the trains moving and get the pages shot every day. So Ron, you've given us a lot of great lessons today and we're going to talk in a few minutes about the acting department, those classes that you run in New York. But uh, you know, I'd like to kind of, I guess, show a little bit more about your teaching knowledge here. And uh, you know, I heard an interview that you did a few years ago where you were discussing playing the intentions of a character on screen to use that as an effective tool to portray a character. 
So using your three different Star Trek appearances as examples, can you kind of tell us about that concept of acting with intentions and finding intentions of a character? Oh, well, you know, everything starts. I, I, I always say, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Uh, I'm, I'm not a creative artist. I don't uh, make up lines. I read. I like to think I read extremely well. And I read with a background uh, that's informed by a lot of great dramatic literature uh, and literature in general. So and I have a good imagination. So um, it, 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 overall, the overall intention, um, you, you know, you have intentions within scenes. Um, and 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 intentions within lines, um, lines, scenes, and then the overarching thing: what your character is trying to achieve overall uh, in in the in the script and the story, the storytelling, which is the most important thing. Um, the story is more important overall than your individual character. Uh, I think we we there's a trap that sometimes uh, young actors and sometimes American actors have fallen into of being thinking that our quote unquote character is more important than the story. Um, I have come to feel over time that the story is the thing, the plays the thing, as as Bill Shakespeare said. Um, so my overall intention, for instance, in Masterpiece Society was to conserve, to save, you know, and, 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 and your intention should be expressible in, in verbs, preferably. Uh, you're acting, you should act with verbs. You should be able to describe what your character is trying to do in a scene with a verb. Um, so I was trying to conserve uh, in, in Masterpiece Society. Uh, in... Deep Space Nine, very simple. I was trying to win. Uh, as my character says at one point, it doesn't, it's the fight that matters to me. I don't care. I'll, de I'll defend. If I get Worf back uh, to the Klingon planet, I'll defend him because what I live for is the battle. I love that Javok voice. Uh, so, um, the, and, uh, with Fessick, uh, in the uh, Voyager, survival. So those are the those are the big overarching intentions. Okay, that's you. You're understanding what your character is trying to do in the story. Okay, and then you go scene by scene. You just, you know, what am I trying to do uh, in this particular scene? You know, there's 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 a, a scene uh, you, you talk about in Masterpiece Society where there's so many different levels of anger. But there's one scene in particular where I'm talking to um, um, I believe the character's name was Adam. The actor's name was John Snyder, uh, the leader of the planet. And I'm talking to him about what he's putting at risk. I'm not chastising at that. There's one the scene where I was pleased with I was pleading with him. I was pleading rather than I, I, I wasn't, wasn't trying to use a hammer on him. You know, I was the overall intention and in the scene was or the main intention in the scene was please. That was the most subject. Please don't do this. 
rather than demanding that he not do it. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And you have to know on any scene, what does my character want? That's a very basic question. What does my character want in this scene? And then what's stopping him? It's usually the, your scene partner, the other character, right? That's where we get the drama, the conflict. And what am I going to do to this person in order to get what my character wants? That's fundamental of acting. If you're not dealing with those things, you're not going to be effective. And now what techniques you use uh, uh, to get there, that's a matter of choice. That's your toolbox and your training, you know, and your homework. But in order for us to have a successful thing, scene, we both have to be doing those things. And it won't work if only one of us is doing it. And when scenes really crackle and are memorable, you know, if it's B.D. Wong and, 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 and Michael Christoph, Christopher and, uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Robot, you know, it's because they're both doing the things that I'm talking about. That is a great lesson. You know, it's, it's all about the fundamentals with really anything that you do that you try to master in life. Uh, using boxing as an example, because I know you're a combat sports guy too. You know, it's you can't really learn how to throw a knockout punch until you learn how to jab. So right. it's all about what you do with those fundamentals. Once you get them, then you can take the next steps to move forward. So great That's lesson. Right. Jab and, and, and balance, right? Yep. <laughs> All about the footwork, but that's a different episode altogether. <laughs> and the fundamentals, the fundamentals, once you learn them, they're the same. And actually, the process simplifies itself over time because a lot of things that you think are important when you're a young actor, you realize that that's just wheel spinning and self-indulgence, that you have to do those fundamental things um, one of the great actors I've gotten to um, work with, Anthony Hopkins, they said, Anthony, how do you do? And he's one of the most fantastic actors in, in, in this, on this planet. He says, I read the script over and over again. I read it over and over again. But you can't get more fundamental than that. Uh, anyway, good fundamentals, good results. So your career is littered with sci-fi shows and films, and we didn't really talk about Babylon 5 or the X-Files today, but uh, the last thing I want to ask you about in the realm of sci-fi is what many consider to be the continuation of Star Trek, and that's the Orville, which is Seth oh, MacFarlane's cool. show, and yes. you've been in several episodes of that. Uh, I know yes. you, we mentioned Ted, too. You worked with Seth on that as well. Uh, but yes. can you tell us about you know working on the Orville? I know most of your scenes have been uh, through a hollow emitter, if you will, uh, basically not necessarily with the main cast, but uh, what, what's your experience been like on the Orville so far? Well, you know, I, I, I loved working on the Orville because Seth is so clearly and obviously a fan. Uh, you probably noticed Brandon Braga is is there in a supervisory capacity as well. Uh, everything about the Orville reflects Seth's love and admiration of Star Trek. And I, I think it's obvious anybody who watches the two shows and he's there's more uh, humor in it, but he's not mocking. He, he, he's not doing Galaxy five or nine or whatever. I mean, he he genuinely loves it. And he has so many Trek persons. The last episode I did was was directed by Jonathan Frakes. 
And it was one of the ones, it was the only one where I wasn't being seen through the, uh, the screen, hollow screen, uh, uh, the communication screen. Uh, and it was with um, Ted Danson and Vincent, uh, Victor Garber uh, and, and uh, Tony Todd. Uh, uh, we're all in the scene together uh, in, in uh, an episode of uh, the Orville that uh, was directed by Jonathan. So all of those Trek people and some of the people from the costume and design people are Trek veterans. It's just very evident if you've been in both worlds that there is a real respect and reverence, although Seth gives it his spin. I think Seth probably watched every episode of Trek Old and New and had a fantasy of being a starship captain. And he became big enough and successful enough and and uh, uh, uh uh, important enough to the studio uh, that he got to, and he's talented enough, so they got to make have his fantasy. He got to be uh, sitting in the command chair of a starship. I just started watching the Orville only recently on Hulu, and of course, the episode that you're in, where you're on screen with like all those great people, I haven't even gotten to yet. So now I've got something to look forward to at the very least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look for the episode uh, directed by Jonathan. I think it's season two. It's early, early uh, season. I believe it's season two. Um, it's one of the first two or three episodes. But uh, um, yeah, Ted, uh, Victor, and Tony Todd. I mean, I know wow. uh, Tony's again one of those guys. Like I'm dying to get on this show because he is just such an amazing actor. He's been oh, in some very great DS9 episodes too. Yeah, to- Tony is Tony's a love again a, a lovely, lovely man. I've met such nice people on Trek World too. That's that's the thing. I, so many people I remember for just what pleasant human beings they were. Robert Picardo, um, a very lovely man. Uh, yeah, but Tony is just just a warm individual and uh, um, was always trying to give me hints on how to get on the convention uh, circuit, which the conventions have never been interested in me. It's been just interesting. It's fascinating. Never, ever, you know, uh, have, have I gotten even the slightest feeler from from a convention but um tony of course who's a big convention guy but uh just one of the nicest guys in in hollywood that i met during my 25 years there um um he plays such fierce characters and um, um sometimes monsters but he he is a big gentle warm guy and uh uh, so, yeah, it's and, and Ted, Ted, uh, I, I love Ted, always love Ted. So, Ron, across your very prolific career, what would you say would be the worst day you ever had on a set and the best day you ever had on a set? Worst day. Wow. Now, that's a weird. That's a that's a that's a heck of a question. Boy, it's hard. I, I love my job so much. That's very diff- difficult, Matthew. I, I, right off the top of my head, I well, that's probably a good thing if you haven't had any really bad days I, then. I, 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 I can't think of it. A worse day would be somehow to be unprepared or holding up production. And I, I, you don't get to have my career and my resume if, if that happens. Uh, so, no. The, um, wow. The best day? Huh. Well, also, there have been so many good ones. I, I, I remember the first day that I worked on on West Wing was probably a great day because I hadn't, that show had been on for years and um, uh, during the first regime and I had never had a chance to 
be on it. And I'm an old Washington journalist. You know, I, I know politics pretty well on a firsthand basis. I had a White House press pass when I was 25 years old. So I know a little bit about it. Um, and the fact that I never got a chance to be on that show until the second regime. But anyway, um, John Wells uh, uh, took over for the last year or two. And um, my first scene was with Allison Janney. And um, that was a that was fun. It was joy. And, you know, she sort of let me know that, you know, she, I did well. And um, I loved just about every day I was ever in, in the situation room with Martin on West Wing. He's 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 a marvelous guy and got to work with the great John Spencer. So that was that was pretty terrific. Um, yeah. And the entire episode with as, as we've gone over uh, the entire uh, rules of engagement episode. And I had a bad head cold and was suffering from allergies rather that 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 through that entire episode. And uh but it was a joy to to work with uh, to work with Labar. So, yeah, those those are those are those are probably those come to mind right off the top. But there's, you know, like I said, I've been fortunate. I've gotten to do what I love to do for for uh, well over thirty years now. Yeah. And, uh, and you've been in over 200 things. I mean, I'm just curious if there's one piece of work across your career so far that you're the most proud of. Well, I would have to say that um, the highest quality artistic thing that I've ever been part of um, that is, you know, critically acclaimed um, uh I, of course, I'm happy about Adventures in Babysitting because it's it's beloved by by people. But um, from the audience acceptance point, but um, John Sayles' Lone Star, ah, yeah. starring, starring Chris Cooper and the late Elizabeth Pena and uh, Matthew McConaughey, and yeah, I'm I'm uh, Carmen de Lavalade. Uh, if 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 I had to write my own a bit and obit and and the first thing that I would want mentioned or if people could only see one thing that i was ever in it would be lone star i guess that's a very good adventures in babysitting is 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 pretty good so you've given us a lot of really great information today on acting itself and i know these days you have uh you're an academy you've got the acting department in new york uh can you tell us a little bit about the acting department well, it's, it really was a course that I gave. And, um, uh, and I keep the website up because my friends who my my producing partner who keeps hoping that I'll get back to it. And post covid, who knows? Um, and, you know, as I as uh, you get to be an older actor, you don't you, you never know how much they're going to want to use you. But basically, I set up because so much of the business has moved from Hollywood, North Hollywood and Burbank. Uh, so much of television has moved back to where it began, dramatic television, scripted television. It's across the river in Queens and Brooklyn. And uh, there's a great acting pool here, of course, of actors who act on Broadway and off Broadway. But a lot of them have a great deal of stage experience and not so much on camera experience. I mean, everybody here has their episode of Law and Order, I guess. But I wanted to create a course where I could help good stage actors transition into competent on-camera actors um, in a 
and over a course, an eight week course. And so that was the purpose of it. And I didn't want I wanted it to be affordable um, for actors, but I wanted to give something back to the profession. I love actors. It's the only club I've ever wanted to be a part of the club of of actors, professional actors. And um, I just wanted to help people who I knew were talented to be successful in the audition room, to be successful at work, to understand what the expectations were, and to understand how to turn their talents, their ability to play, into the ability to play within the frame. It's like the difference between playing live concert and being playing in a the studio. They're not the same thing. You're doing the same thing, but you employ slightly, somewhat different techniques and almost uh, the difference between stage and camera, you're applying almost opposite technique. And I just wanted to explain it to them clearly and also to show them, to work with them, to put people on camera, to take make corrections, give them feedback, and then put them back on camera and let them see for themselves uh, how it works. So that was the origin of uh, the acting department. And I called it that because I wanted to, them to know that just as on a film set, there's the camera department, the sound department, the wardrobe department, you know, uh, uh, the set this department, the art department, that you're the acting department and you're responsible for the storytelling and performance and that you have to come ready with that because you're expected to know the most about your character in the story and people on, 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 on in theater, we, 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 we get to spend weeks in developing our character and, and being guided by the director, etc. When you get on a movie or television set, particularly on television set, the director is there to get those pages shot and every department is expected to function. And so it's a different mindset. And I wanted to be able to convey that mindset. It starts with the, the name. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to renew the course again. And that's why the website stays up, because my producing partner hopes that I will give the course again. Uh, I definitely do hope the acting department makes the comeback, because, you know, I think today has been a great example of just what type of instruction you offer. And it's it's been some amazing lessons you've given us today. So and you're, you're so clear and descriptive and easy to understand. Uh, so really, you've given everybody today quite a gift just by giving us a little bit of taste of what the acting department is like. Well, I like to demystify um, um, acting uh, or or demythologize it. Um, uh, it. It's it's a set of skills. It's not a mystery. The talent is maybe a mystery, but uh, who gets it and who doesn't? But um, there is a lot of baloney that gets talked about by acting, but I also want people to understand it. It's just, I want to help them to have an appreciation of, of what's going on when they watch it. So I'm, I'm always glad to, to kind of try to take the smoke and mist away from around it. And a lot of the mythological stuff, there was only one Brando one. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ron, uh, last thing for today, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, wow. Wow, Matthew. It's it's being part of something so universally loved that it reaches people around the world, people in just 
about every, in, certainly every industrialized uh, country. Um, but some third world countries too, something that brings that people love globally. Um, something that I think it will be enduring and continues to endure. Something that brought me great joy and made me feel included in the future. I think Whoopi Goldberg has said this is something very similar. Whoopi and I are exactly the same age. Um, and she grew up in the housing projects in New York like me, and I think had the same experience. Um, but more than that, something that is so hopeful about the future of mankind, uh, especially when we look around what we've been through the last several years and, and what we're going through, what the whole world is going through, the hope the picture, the hopeful picture, and the hopeful mythology that that Star Trek world creates and, and what it's done to open the way for Ron Moore and David Icke's great star, a great show, uh, Galactica, the Galactica reboot, and, and, uh, and so many other, so much good, television sci-fi that exists now. So I'm proud of it. And I'm proud. This, you know, this is the only kind of immortality that we have is what art we participate in. It lives after us. So well, I'm glad you're proud of your appearances on the Star Trek franchise because they are all very memorable appearances. And uh, I want to thank you again, say, for being so generous with especially your time today, but also the stories, all the great information, uh, a lot of great lessons for anybody who wants to be an actor or director, especially. I think there's a lot of good things to pick up here in this interview. Uh, just, you know, I love the way you present your, your information. Uh, you're an excellent teacher. So I really do hope the acting department makes some kind of comeback in 2021. Uh, so, Ron, thank you so much today. It's been a wonderful time chatting with you. Thank you, Matthew. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. And that was our chat with Ron Canada, whose expertise and passion for the art of acting is matched by his ability to explain so eloquently about what he does. He's a true master of his craft and someone worth studying and learning more from for sure, as well as celebrating like we did here today. And a reminder for anybody who wants to learn more about the acting department, visit roncanada.nyc. Hopefully, Ron gets back to teaching again at some point, but even if he doesn't start holding classes again in the traditional sense, I suggest if you're interested in learning more from him about performing, go ahead and send him a message and maybe you could set up a private session with him. It would absolutely be money well spent, and if you do, I'd love to hear about it. Going back to Ron's episode of Deep Space Nine, Rules of Engagement was originally supposed to center around Cisco and not Worf, and the ending would have involved the holographic imagery instead of what ultimately happened in that episode. Iris Stephen Bear ultimately made the right decision in tweaking the story into what it was. And speaking of Ira, he's also the person responsible for that directing idea of having the testimony speak directly to the camera, having gotten the idea from a Spike Lee film. LeVar Burton really liked the idea and found it a very fun and also challenging experience, but one that ultimately clearly reaped very great rewards in the final version that made it to TV. Another interesting thing to note about the changes that happened from when the show first went into production versus what ultimately aired is that originally Worf was going to be forced to remove his baldric, which is that sash that he wears across his chest. Chipak was going to request that he not be allowed to wear it since he was no longer recognized as part of the Klingons and was offended by the sight of this dishonored son of Moog wearing it. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. 
please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.